morning, friends. Um, we're going to read the Bible together now. Ezekiel 1, verses 1 to 28. In my 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kabar River, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Buzi, by the Kabar River in the land of the Babylonians. There the hand of the Lord was on him. I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The centre of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was human, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands. All four of them had faces and wings, and the wings of one touched the wings of another. Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a human being. And on the right side, each had the face of a lion. And on the left, the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. They each had two wings spreading out upward. Each wing touching that of the creature on either side. And each had two other wings covering its body. Each one went straight ahead. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, without turning as they went. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. As I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. This was the appearance and structure of the wheels. They sparkled like topaz and all four looked alike. Each appeared to be made like a wheel intersecting a wheel. As they moved, they would go in any one of the four directions the creatures faced. The wheels did not change direction as the creatures went. Their rims were high and awesome and all four rims were full of eyes all around. When the living creatures moved, the wheels beside them moved. And when the living creatures rose from the ground, the wheels also rose. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go. And the wheels would rise along with them because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When the creatures moved, they also moved. When the creatures stood still, they also stood still. And when the creatures rose from the ground, the wheels rose along with them because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked like something like a vault, sparkling like crystal and awesome. Under the vault, their wings were stretched out one toward the other and each had two wings covering its body. When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings, like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of any army. When they stood still, they lowered their wings. 
Then there came a voice from above the vault over their heads as they stood with lowered wings. Above the vault over their heads was what looked like a throne of lapis lazuli and high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up he looked like glowing metal as if full of fire and that from there down he looked like fire and brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down and I heard the voice of one speaking. anyone have any questions? Good. <laughs> Let's pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, passage like this, it reminds us that you are a God who is worthy of praise and worship. And Father, we pray that this morning we might indeed worship you with our hearts and our minds as we consider your glorious word. Amen. You ever notice the way that a house's entrance often offers you a, a hint of what might be on the other side of the door? The way that the household organises their shoes, for instance, or the lack thereof. That's not my house, by the way, in case you're wondering. Or the way a welcome mat might just say, you know, get ready to nerd out. Or the way a sign on a gate might say, get ready to run. Then there are those houses that pride themselves on their grand entrance. Like this one in Melbourne. That's a grand entrance, right? And it makes a promise about what you might find on the inside of the house. A promise that it well delivers on. That's a stunning house, isn't it? Favourite, actually, I found this week is from Brisbane. It's called Riverfront. Not just because the house is literally located right on a riverfront, but because you can see there at the front of the house at this grand entrance is a river of sorts and it actually runs through the house and becomes a pool within the house. It's stunning. The backyard's kind of cool too. Entrances say a lot about a house. They set expectations for your visit. They give you a sense of what you might be in for. And the book of Ezekiel as we just had read for us, is a grand entrance of sorts as well. Obviously, we're not talking about a $10 million mansion. We're talking about the God of creation. And the opening chapter here in Ezekiel is God's grand entrance in much the same way to a house. This entrance kind of rolls out the welcome mat for us and sets some expectations on what might be on the inside. One commentator I read this week characterized the book of Ezekiel as full of majesty, obscurity and difficulty. It's like, great. <laughs> I can't think of a better way to describe this first chapter, actually, than those three words, majesty, obscurity, and difficulty. What is going on here? Four-faced creatures, fire, lightning, a mobile throne on wheels, which are somehow covered in eyes. It's like, what? <laughs> what is going on here? I say this without any exaggeration. But this opening chapter has got to be up there with one of the most bizarre and strange opening chapters in the entire Bible. 
And here we are today, standing at this front door, wondering why do we ring the doorbell? <laughs> what are we going to find on the inside of this book? I took a quick straw poll last week at Night Church. I was leading Night Church, and I just was curious to see how many people actually read the book of Ezekiel. Hands up, and there was like six or seven people that put their hand up. And I reckon part of the reason is actually because of this opening chapter, because it's so strange and weird. If you kind of set yourself to to read through this book, you kind of, at the very first step, you're like, what's going on here? You flick forward and work out, there's still 47 other chapters to this book. (laughs) It's like, thanks, but no thanks, right? I'm out. But that's exactly why it's worth ringing this doorbell, I think. This is the second largest book in the Bible. And a lot of us have little to no idea of what it's actually on about. As Bruce said, I've been thinking and praying about this series for quite a while. And I've come to the conclusion that this book really offers us a fantastic opportunity. Like those times when you decide to, to go on a deep clean of your house. I mean like really deep go into that stuff you've not touched in years and you come upon a box you can't even remember being there in the first place and you dig through the box you get to the bottom of the box and there's this photo album dusty old and you're like what you've never seen it before and you open it up and inside is it's full of photographs of your parents from decades and decades ago you didn't even realize we're in there you'd never seen these photos before but my goodness as you flick through those pages of this album, it brings them into a new light. They're they're the same people they've always been and yet it offers you a chance to to see them in a new angle, to gain a fresh insight on who they are. I reckon the book of Ezekiel actually gives us the same kind of opportunity. It offers us the chance to deepen and enrich our understanding of our God and hopefully draw us nearer to him relationship. Now before we get stuck into chapter one, we're going to need to do a bit of background first. Because you see, if Israel's history in the Old Testament, if it was like a 10 episode Netflix show, the book of Ezekiel is kind of like episode eight, in that it kind of comes towards the end of the story of Israel's history in the Old Testament. So we need to wind back a little bit and just to have a recap, really, on what was going on in episode five and six and seven. So here's my super condensed, previously on Israel's history. The kings came, the kings fell, and the people forgot God. After the death of King Solomon, who was responsible for building God's temple, the kingdom of Israel splits into two, north and south, Israel and Judah. And then we have over uh, many centuries, 40 kings who come, roughly 40 kings who come and lead God's people. Now out of those 40 kings, three of them are any good. Out of 40, that's less than 10%. And these leaders, they end up leading God's people away from God. So Eventually, God's people start sacrificing and praying to foreign gods, to the gods of their neighbors. And these kings end up signing treaties and making alliances with 
their neighboring nations in order to gain power and feel secure. And so bit by bit, God's people end up falling out of love with God because they've fallen in love with the nations around them. God sends prophet after prophet after prophet to just try and bring them back. So you've got like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos and Micah and Hosea and they plead with the people, come back to God, repent, return. And time and time and time again, Israel refuses. Eventually, God puts it like this in Jeremiah. He says, as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your own land, so now you will serve foreigners in a land not your own. It's like, you're so intent on worshiping other gods and cozying up to these other nations, it's time for you to go and actually live with them. Go and do that somewhere else. Eventually, that's what happens. Nations came. Cities fell, and God's people were exiled. In 722 BC, the Assyrian Empire sweeps through the northern kingdom and destroys them. You never hear from them again. Just 125 years after that, same thing happens to the south, only this time it's the empire of Babylon. They come in, sweep through, and they carry off, deport all of the important leaders educated, wealthy, priestly families. They would do this to nations that they conquered, not just to support their own resources, but to also just cut out the legs of whatever nation they'd conquered. Ezekiel, as part of a priestly family, gets carried off into exile as well. It is pretty hard to imagine just how terrible a situation this ended up being for Judah, for God's people. To be expelled from the promised land that held so much meaning and significance, not just for them, but for their ancestors, right? It was who they were. The land was what they knew. They were cut off from their homes, homes that they probably invested uh, lifetimes into, livelihoods that they had honed, cut off from the temple and therefore cut off from God himself in a foreign land, under foreign rule, surrounded by a foreign culture, and a people that spoke a foreign language. And then, five years on, five years on from that terrible moment, Ezekiel is sitting by the Kibar River in the middle of Babylon, and God makes a grand entrance. Ezekiel chapter one. And look, it is no mistake, it's no accident that this book opens in this way with a vision of God because it sets up a theme that is actually gonna run through the rest of the 47 chapters of this book. And that is the importance of knowing who God truly is. That had been Israel's fatal mistake, right? They'd lost sight of him. They'd loosened their grip on him. They had fallen out of love with him precisely because they'd forgotten who he truly was. So that phrase up there that we've used as a kind of series title for this term, then you will know that I am the Lord, God says that over 70 times through the book. Because everything that's going on here, everything God's doing, everything he's saying to his people through Ezekiel, it, it's to this end, that they may know who he truly is, that they may come to remember who he truly is. Our question today, of course, is how 
on earth is a chapter like this helping to jog Israel's memory? That's our question. I want to start in on answering that question with the number four. You might have picked up as Mark read through this epic passage, just how often the number four is kind of incorporated into this vision. So you've got, you know, four creatures and they're positioned at the four different corners of God's great throne. Each one of these creatures has four faces. Each one of these creatures has four wings. And we've also got four wheels in there as well, right? Four is the number of the day. Why is that? Well, a common feature of uh, ancient Near Eastern cosmology, as in the way they understood the world, was to talk about the entirety of the world with the phrase, the four corners of the earth and the four winds that came from the four corners. You might be familiar with that term. Uh, So to talk about the number four is actually to connect in with that idea of kind of all-encompassing. Someone today might say, you know, I've been everywhere, north, south, east, west. Same kind of idea. And you see features in here that really point to this idea. So the the wheels, for instance, we're told uh, they intersected one another. Uh, So there's a wheel kind of within a wheel. That's there in verse 16. And the point of that is actually because it allows the wheels to move in all directions. And the, the, the creatures don't just have one face, they have four faces, which actually means the creatures can see in all directions, no matter which way they go. The impression that it builds is that when it comes to God, there's nowhere he cannot be. And there's nothing he cannot see. What a powerful statement for God to be making to a people who were convinced God had abandoned them, that God had forgotten them. Powerful statement. We'll come back to that before the end. But following kind of this rule of four, there's at least four qualities of God that I reckon this vision presents to us about him. He is a a God who is above and beyond. A God who is both near, above, beyond, near, far. You know, a vision like this surely is evidence of the fact that when it comes to God, there will always be a part of him that remains beyond our understanding. Like you don't come to a chapter like this and read through it and go, oh yeah, makes sense. Like no one does that. You go, whoa, what did I just read? You scratch your head, you you, you screw up your eyes. It's puzzling and confounding. And, you know, people have tried to make sense of it by by putting it into pictures, by trying to represent it visually. And it, like, it's kind of helpful, but also it's kind of just further confusing. Like, what's actually going on there? Someone I found this week had, had spent a lot of time putting some kind of ugly 90s computer graphics together to try to depict this. And it's like, okay. Yikes, like, doesn't help all that much. Doesn't help you understand it all that much. You know, even Ezekiel struggles to describe what he's seeing. He, he has to use the word like over seven, 17 times as he goes through this description. And look, it's not Ezekiel's fault. See, what he's trying to do is, 
He's trying to use the things of this creation, fire, lightning, to describe someone who is not of creation. That's an impossible task. And he's struggling to pull it together. And we get like crazy visions like this. I mean, the good news is if you were there, it wouldn't have looked exactly like that. Thank goodness. It would have just looked like it in some way. But the fact that it has to be like this, I think it makes perfect sense because we're talking about God here. We're talking about God and God is so infinitely complex and epically profound. We shouldn't expect that he's actually gonna be able to fit inside our head. And you know, any God that was simple and small enough to fit inside my tiny brain isn't really a God and certainly isn't a God worthy of our worship. I think sometimes that means we actually need to get our head around the fact that God is bigger than our understanding. And that means there's always going to be a part of his work in the world that we will be beyond us. That's exactly the way it has to be when you're dealing with someone as infinitely complex and epically profound as God. And that thought should really humble us, I think, at the very least, and perhaps soften the tone that we use when we, when we come to God and demand, why haven't you done this? Why haven't you done this yet? Or we bring charges against him because we think what he's doing is wrong or unwise or not good. There's also comfort though out of the humility for those times when I don't get what God is doing, whether that's in my life or in this world. It doesn't have to be a deal breaker. It just means that I'm dealing with a God who's often beyond my understanding. I wonder what you do with the stuff about him you can't seem to fit in your head. What do you do with it? Do you hold it against him? Or do you entrust it to him? God's above, sorry, beyond our understanding Ezekiel's vision reveals he's also above all authorities. Notice back there, at the very start of the vision, before it even kicks off in verse one, the way that Ezekiel puts it, the heavens were opened, I saw visions of God. I really like the way that he puts that. It makes me imagine like there's this, cos- this, this, this cosmic curtain that kind of conceals the true reality of things. And yet here on the riverbank, Ezekiel just gets to lift the corner of that curtain for a moment and have a peek behind what's actually going on. And what does he see? What do we see? The Lord as a glorious king sitting high on his throne in awesome splendor and majesty. When Queen Elizabeth opens parliament each year, she wears what's known as regalia. It's kind of a fancy term for clothing and jewelry that that signifies the the status that she holds and the authority that she has. You can see there in that picture, she's wearing what's known as the imperial state crown. It's kind of impressive, isn't it? it? It weighs over a kilo, such that when she reads her speech, she actually has to take it off because otherwise it falls as she's looking down at her notes. And it holds almost 3,000 precious stones. She's also got this scepter, which you can see sitting there in front of the cushion, 
which at the very top, you might be able to see it in the picture, has a 530-carat diamond, which is the largest clear-cut diamond in the world. It's impressive, but it's got nothing on God's regalia. We see it here all through the passage, right? His entire throne is made up of a precious stone, lapis lazuli, which is like one of the most precious stones they knew in the ancient world. The whole throne is made out of this stuff. He's draped in molten fire. He's surrounded by lightning and the brilliance of rainbows. It's like God's regalia is cosmic. It's cosmic and it casts him as this mighty warrior king whose power extends above all authorities. So by lifting the cosmic curtain, Ezekiel gets to see that that even though the king of Babylon might have conquered God's people, the king of the cosmos was still on the throne. He was still on the throne. What a thing for Ezekiel to be reminded of in that moment. What a, what a thing for us to be reminded of in this moment. For those times when we look around at our world and it, and it feel, fills us with dread and with worry at, at the rapid pace of change, change that doesn't always seem so positive, at the chaos and the conflict that breaks out and it just looks like a mess. Or maybe when it comes to our own lives, forget the world, just look at my own life and the, the way that it just seems to be kind of running out of control so often. People seem to be turned against me all the time, working against me, and my plans that I carefully put together, they never seem to come out the way that I want them to. Ezekiel's vision reminds us that whatever the world might look like right now and whatever your life might look like right now, God still reigns. He's still on the throne. There's great comfort in knowing that. And I want to encourage you to take hold of that comfort this morning. I'm sure as you read this passage, you weren't going, oh, I feel so comforted. (laughs) But there is comfort in there because it's proclaiming that our God still sits on the throne. And we need to remember that. And we need to remember that because there's not just comfort there, there's challenge. If our God does indeed sit above all authorities, then that's actually a reality that should be reflected in our own lives as well. In the decisions that we make, in the way that we spend our time, in the things we put our money towards, in the way that we speak, in the way that we speak to God, in the way that we speak about God to others. It needs to be reflected in all of that and much, much more. And yet, it so often isn't. Just think on the week that's been for a moment for you. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Who was sitting on the throne of your last week? Was it you? Was it God? Was it someone else? The Lord is beyond our understanding. He's above all authorities and he's also far apart in holiness. Now, holy is a term that we use and I think we understand what we mean when we use it, but you try and define it and it's like, ah, like it's a little bit tricky. But the word holy actually just means to be set apart, to be separate, to be different or distinct. 
So to say that God is holy is to really say that he is set apart from his creation, from us. He is the creator, we are the creation. So there's a, there's a separation there. He's holy in that regard. And when we use the word holy of God, we, we often particularly mean his moral and spiritual character. That is holy, different from us. And it's this quality of his, his holiness, which actually makes it impossible for people like us who are morally and spiritually compromised, it makes it impossible for us to actually be in the presence of a holy God. I like to use the image of, a, of the sun, actually, to help kind of wrap your head around this idea. If God is the sun and his holiness is like his heat, the sun is hot. The hottest part of the sun is actually at the, at the very core and it can reach temperatures of up to 15 million degrees Celsius. It's fairly warm. At my core, I get to about 36 and a half degrees, give or take. Maybe I can push it to 40 if I've got a fever. I am entirely other and different to the sun, particularly when it comes to our temperatures. And so if I want to get close to the sun, we all know what's going to happen, right? I can't stand the heat. I'm going to be consumed. Because the sun is completely different, completely set apart from me. You know what? God is actually holier than the sun is hot, if you can believe it. God is holier than the sun is hot, and that makes him dangerous to unholy people like us. Now, the word holy isn't used in Ezekiel's vision. You won't see it anywhere in there, but the effect of his holiness is loud and clear. You see, the creatures have got... Four sets of wings, sorry, two sets of wings, four wings, two obviously to keep them up and two to cover their bodies, which is really strange until you realize that they're using their wings to to shield themselves from God's holiness. And that big vault that's described as being made of crystal that sits between God on his throne and the creatures and Ezekiel and then us, that's actually a shield as well, a point of separation to acknowledge God's holiness then you've also got Ezekiel's reaction there in verse 28 at the very end. He comes back into it and all he does is fall on the ground. Presumably he does that because he doesn't have a set of wings to use to shield himself. All he can do is fall on the ground to try to cover himself from the radiance of God's holiness. As we'll come to see this term, the book of Ezekiel takes sin very seriously. It's the whole reason God's people were in this situation in the first place. They'd profaned the holy God. I really like the way that Dan Wu put it on Wednesday night. If you were here at our teaching night on Wednesday, great, great night. If you haven't watched it, it's on YouTube. You can catch it up. It's also on our podcast, so you can listen to it during the week. I want to encourage you to do that. There's so much good stuff in it. But he he talked about this element on Wednesday night. I decided to steal it. He said... The book of Ezekiel helps to clear away the gloss of our sin, by which he means the way that we see our sin. It's not as glossy. We actually come to see it the way God sees it. So instead of, instead of it looking glamorous, like it often does, it starts to look ghastly, like it actually is. Instead of looking cheap, it starts to look 
costly. And instead of us delighting in our sin, like we often do, it starts to disgust us like it does God. Buckle up. As God is far apart, though he is far apart, the final quality we see is that he's also a God that draws near. If you were to ask me what the craziest part of this chapter is, I wouldn't point to the four-faced creatures. I wouldn't point to the, the wheels with awesome rims covered in eyes. As weird as those things might be, I'd actually point to the location of where this vision takes place. It's the where, I reckon, that's the craziest part. It's there at the very start, first verse. Ezekiel says, while I was among the exiles by the Kibar River. It's kind of blink and you'll miss it moment, but that's what I reckon makes this chapter so remarkable because God is showing up in the very heart of the Babylonian empire and it's thousands of miles away from Judah. In the ancient Near East, gods were commonly thought to actually belong to places, so they belonged to a nation and they kind of kept to the boundaries of that nation and so as you moved into another nation, you'd be moving into another god's kind of dominion or domain. And even God's people started to think like this, which is where you get like Jonah thinking he can just jump on a ship and leg it to another country and get away from Yahweh. The truth is, of course, that our God's got wheels. <laughs> That's what this passage tells us, doesn't it? Our God's got wheels. Our God roams. Nowhere he cannot be, nothing he cannot see. Boundary lines are meaningless to our God. Now, even though God allowed his people to be taken into exile, like it was part of his judgment. And even though he's got some pretty fierce words to say to them still, and we're going to experience some of that in the next couple of weeks. The first half of this book, in fact, is God trying to impress upon Israel the, the very reason why they find themselves in exile. They still hadn't got it yet. Despite all of that, the most remarkable thing about his grand entrance here is the fact that God is going into exile with his people. That's astounding. It's astounding. Though they had forgotten him, he hadn't forgotten them. The book of Ezekiel is where we learn that exile was actually not the end that God was going to come after them and that he was willing to do whatever it would take in order to get them home. Friends, this is the, this is the kind of God that we're dealing with here. The God who draws near and he's actually been like that since the very beginning. We see this quality of his most clearly, don't we? When he actually came down and took on flesh and lived amongst us while we were lost, while we were apart from him, while we were under the reign of a king, not the king of Babylon, but the king of the air, while we were slaves to sin and to death, Jesus follows us into exile in order to show us the way home. In Christ, we've got the ultimate example of a God who's not willing to simply walk away. banks of that river, in the heart of the Babylonian empire, Ezekiel witnessed God's grand entrance, a God who is beyond our understanding, above all authorities, a God who is far apart in holiness and yet who still draws near 
There is nowhere he cannot be, nothing he cannot see, and yet he wants to be with you. Friends, this is our God. Let's pray. Lord God, your glory in this chapter is beyond our understanding. We thank you that though we might forget you, you don't forget us. We thank you for sending Jesus into exile in order to get us back. Great is your love poured out for all. You are our God and all we can do is to fall at your feet worship.